welcome to episode 331 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I am Jesse. And I am Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Listen, I'm always stoked when I take a look at our calendar and I see the conversations that we have lined up, stacked up, on tap, whatever you want to say. And I come across one that I think, oh, this is going to be interesting because let's just get to some kind of theological word that's got lots of great baggage, that has lots of different implications, that has lots of different experiences across all different groups of people. And this is one of those words, and I'm not even going to say it yet. I'm just going (laughs) to let that hang out there and say that it's coming. So either either be more dramatic than you expect or less dramatic than you expect, or I don't know, maybe you just guessed it properly, or you've seen the title. I forgot. Yeah, it's exactly as dramatic as you expected. <laughs> See, I always forget that because, you know, I'm trying to build in, like, listen, people, there. this is a medium of communication. There is like <laughs> a little bit of showmanship and a pageantry that we want to bring, but you've spoiled it all by looking at the title of this. You've taken that from me. Jesse always forgets that people know the topic when they listen to the episode because he doesn't usually know the topic until we start recording. (laughs) Nice. How dare you, brothers and sisters? How dare you? All right. So that aside, I mean, if you didn't look at the title, now you're just, you're furiously going to take a look at it. So it's all done. So let's affirm and deny some things. And I'm still just going to bury the lead because I can. Would you like to start with an affirmation or would you prefer to begin with a denial? Let's start with an affirmation. Okay. Do you want to start or should I? Uh, why don't you start? So I'm affirming, uh, this is something I've used before. It's not not particularly new. It's kind of an in-progress commentary set. But I'm affirming the ESV exegetical commentary set. And the reason I'm affirming this, it's in progress. It's um, It's kind of still being published. I think there's two more volumes that have not been released. Each volume is probably about $30 or $40. So it's not like it's cheap, but... Uh, you can spend a lot more on a, a volume of a commentary set. Um, it, I think the total is 12 volumes. So some of the volumes, most of the volumes have multiple books of the Bible. But the really nice thing about it is you don't necessarily have to have a good technical knowledge of Greek or really any knowledge of Greek at all to make use of this commentary set. Um, it's it's not superficial, but it's not technical in the same sense as like the pillar commentary set or like the Zonervan's and New International Version commentary. A lot of commentaries, if you don't have a good mastery of Greek and Hebrew, you end up being kind of lost in the minutia. This is really more of a commentary set that's focused on explaining the text in sort of layperson's terms, um, a little bit more technical than layperson's terms. Um, They make use of some Greek, but they explain that very well. And there's always a section at the end that's more oriented towards application. And it's not, how do I apply this to my life? It's how would the preacher apply this to the congregation? So it's good. It's affordable. It's usable. Uh, It uses the ESV as the base text. Obviously, they're working from Greek and Hebrew, but the text that they're presenting is the ESV. So their commentary is oriented around a similar kind of translation understanding, especially in like disputed words. And each volume is written by a like a a plurality of authors. So each book has its own author, which is is common with commentary sets. But it's nice because you get a well-rounded perspective on the books that are present. So check it out. It's the ESV Expository Commentary Series. You can get it in ebook form. You can buy hard copies. I think it's available on Logos. So you can get it pretty much in any format you want. 
I love it. You know how much we love our commentaries. I think sometimes those commentaries get a bad rap, whatever the level is, right? Like there's all kinds of different ways you can kind of jump into the commentary yeah. game. And some of those get a bad rap. I just think those are really useful resources for personal study, for preparation, for biblical expository preaching, for all those things. Like you almost yeah. can't go wrong with just getting a set of commentaries and just enjoying them as a complement to the things that you're reading in the scriptures to help make you more informed reader, to help you appreciate more what's going on in the text itself, and to draw you closer into the central theological ideas. Again, nothing is a replacement of the scriptures itself. There are a lot of great tools in the category of what a time to be alive yeah. where you can have access to these things and get just a broader spectrum of learning that was in, you know, even recently not accessible. So this is just so great. I love it. Yeah. It, the best way to describe this commentary set is it's basically um, the same kinds of notes that you would get in a decent uh, study Bible, but expanded and for every single verse of the Bible. There you go. So it'd be like if you took the, um, not necessarily the ESV study Bible, because there's some issues with the ESV study Bible and EFS stuff. I haven't run into that in this, but I haven't, I haven't necessarily looked at the specific passages and see if it's there, but it'd be like if you took the Reformation study Bible and took one of the study notes and expanded it. So you were doing a full comment on every single verse. It's very similar in terms of technicality and depth to something like, like that. So if you, if you like using a study Bible and you're looking for a little bit more, it's got good historical introductions, book introductions, it's got good outlines. Uh, this is the way to go. And like I said, it's not, it's not like it's super cheap. But it, it definitely is more affordable than something like the um, like the new international version, you know, commentary, critical text commentary, something like that, where you, you'll pay $80, $90 per volume. This one is maybe, I want to say it's like $25 to $30 for the smaller volumes, and it's maybe $45 to $50 for the larger volumes. So it's an investment, but I think it's an investment worth making, especially if you're, you're a theological student or you're uh, learning to, you know, you're a kind of a fledgling preacher or something like that. Um, it's definitely a useful commentary set to give you sort of the base, the, the lay of the land from a, not necessarily like a capital R reform perspective, but from sort of that like lowercase r, we'll call it like the crossway reformed perspective, right? You think of what crossway is, who the authors are, you're getting that broad evangelical reformed flavored commentary on the scriptures. So it's worth having. Um, I'm glad that I'm building it. I think, like I said, I think there's two more volumes to be released. Um, unfortunately, I want to start reading through the whole thing, but they haven't received re uh, released the Genesis commentary yet. So, and the the largest one that uh, I see is the Psalms commentary. It's like four and a half inches thick. It's a tome. Nice, that's fantastic. I actually have, believe it or not, another way to describe this commentary, and it aligns with my affirmation. So, oh, let's do it. Of course, yeah. Here we go. This is gonna be interesting. I actually like this. It's it seems to be on point. So, we all know by now that AI and its various iterations. It's coming for all of us. And I, for one, welcome our AI new overlords. And we, we've talked at length about chat, GPT, and how at this point, like people should realize it's just me doing this podcast. Tony is entirely AI. It's not even here. So everything you just heard, and it sounds a lot like Tony, but we've just trained a bot to be able to replicate everything with, with great authenticity and how accuracy. How dare you? So, <laughs> so here's something else that I've been using recently. It's called perplexity.ai. Maybe you've heard of this. So I've been using this as like a lovely alternative to Google. 
because the AI is coming, you know, Bing is going to integrate some kind of conversational searching, but perplexity.ai is really great because it provides more than just a list of results. It searches a wide range of sources, including things like academic papers, and it writes up a quick summary with cited sources that you can click on them for further research. So by example, I just typed in real quick, what is the ESV exegetical commentary? Here's what it said to me. The ESV expository commentary is a series of commentaries designed to strengthen the global church with a widely accessible, theologically sound, and pastorally wise resource for understanding and applying the overarching storyline of the Bible. And it's citing the Gospel Coalition and Crossway. The EC is exegetically sound, robustly biblical, theological, globally aware, and broadly reformed, lowercase r. It is useful to a broad audience within the church, including seasoned pastors, students, young ministers, small group leaders, and those interested in but intimidated by commentaries. So basically, this thing just said everything you just said, more or less. <laughs> it was pretty much right on. So this is like kind of like chat GPT light, kind of, but like more in this integrated search. It's just a fun way to like throw in some questions and get a thread going that kind of can put you into more topical and cross-referenced conversation um, and ideas. Yeah. So what was sourced in this was Crossway, WTS Books, Books at a Glance, and the Gospel Coalition. A fun little tool. So add this into your whatever you're doing on the internet, perplexity.ai. Super fun. Nice. I like it. It's it's not quite the same thing as the chat GTPT AI because yes. it looks like what it is doing is it's just pulling information from existing resources and synthesizing it together, which you is useful. Um, so I asked it to create a podcast tagline for the Reform Brotherhood podcast. And all it did was go to our website and grab our tagline. So that's good. That's, that's, accurate. that's It's accurate. Um, so yeah, that's cool. I haven't heard of that yet. Usually I'm, I'm, I'm in top of these things more than you are. So that's I'm a little bit surprised that you got this one first. So yeah, this is more like, I think what search is going to become for yes. us yeah. in the future is more like the synthesized explanation of the thing that you're after instead of like this just list of links that's what makes this fun and i would just say this like i'm not willing to throw out the baby with the bathwater on this the nice thing about ai i think is that when you interact with something like chat gpt or perplexity.ai what you're getting is like a draft response it's then up to you to like process that make sure that it's reasonable and then like either discard it in whole or take part and parcel of the pieces that are actually accurate. We're going to have to start to do that. So yeah. this is more in line with that. It's just a different way to search, but it's nice to be able to search for something. Like I was searching for ideas and all kinds of things and just getting like a written description in prose with additional links for you to go back and have deeper exploration. Yeah. I do kind of like that as a jam. Cer certainly if you're just like looking for the closest Starbucks, this isn't that thing. But if you're trying to discover ideas or get a summary for a complex concept, or again, you're thinking through theological terms and you like to see what's written, it's great. Our topic is going to be on the sacrament. So I did have a bunch of things that I put into this and asked, and it was super interesting to kind of see the synthesizing of all kinds of information and just in like this nice, lovely way of like with brevity, trying to explain something. Brevity is like the test of everything for me these days. Like if you can be brief and you can be accurate, like you're going to win. So that is the goal for me in a lot of things. And I love that this is kind of moving in that direction. So everybody should just go, go type, go ask it ridiculous questions and see what you get back. Uh, in other news, I just asked perplexity where the closest Starbucks to Canaan, New Hampshire is. And it gave me a bunch of results in Canada. And then also said that there's one in Enfield, New Hampshire, which there is not one in Enfield, New Hampshire. So user, <laughs> uh, user beware, caveat or whatever, emptor whatever latin phrase buyer beware whatever that is so uh, 
that's that's great Latin there. All right, so let's move on then. What are you denying against? So I don't have a denial so much. Uh, we've introduced this new topic. I think we've only done it once, but I'm I'm I call it we distinguish, and this is where it's not quite an affirmation. It's not quite a denial. It's sort of we want to delineate uh, our position from other positions out there. So Jesse, have you heard about all this stuff that's going on at Asbury University? Who hasn't heard about this by this point? Uh, some people haven't. I asked someone the okay. other day who was a Christian. They were like, what are you talking about? So, which was actually sort of refreshing, especially based on what I'm about to say. So for those of you who are like, what's going on in Asbury? I, I'm not going to say it's not a revival, uh, but they're calling it a revival. And I usually use revival in air quotes when I'm talking about this, because I don't think we have a way to know right now whether this is or is not a revival. Revival is one of those things that is best described historically looking back because whether this is or is not a revival is going to be largely determined by what the outcome is, right? So we commonly talk about like the first great awakening, which is the quote unquote revival that happened in Jonathan Edwards day with preaching of George Whitfield. And I think what some people miss is that the same people who were weeping and crying and confessing their sin uh, when, when Jonathan Edwards preached sinners in the hands of an angry God, those same people were the ones that were kicking him out of the pulpit a few years later because he uh, wanted to fence the table too strongly. So revival is a thing that's best assessed and assigned that label retrospectively, looking back at the outcome. But for those who don't know what's going on, I think it was February 8th. Uh, I might be wrong on that date, but sometime in early February, there was a routine chapel service going on in Asbury University, which is an undergraduate in Lexington, Kentucky, or Wilmore, Kentucky. Uh, there's a seminary that's associated with it, but this was happening at the at the university. So we're talking about mostly college kids. And this, this, the message that was shared from all accounts was very much a, a sort of a loose, we should love each other kind of a kind of a sermon and something happened and people started confessing sin and they extended the chapel service. And now this chapel service has been going on more or less continuously since then. So we're going, today is the 19th. So we're on day 11 of this. So they're calling it a revival. People are coming from all around the area. People are driving from eight, 10 hours away to come see this. There's reports that people are standing out in the rain and cold weather. And what I want to distinguish is there are those who are acting skeptical, who are kind of immediately casting doubt on this. And there are those who are immediately accepting this. So there's those that immediately reject. There are those that immediately dismiss. I actually think both of those positions are assuming the wrong thing. My watch just decided it wanted to participate. This is what AI does to us folks. <laughs> That's right. I actually think that the, the reformed perspective on this Right. The reformed. Uh, and we're actually we're going to talk some about this today with our topic, bury the lead even more. The reformed position very much emphasizes the ordinary means of grace. Right. It's it's about what God has promised to do ordinarily. The, the ways that he's promised to meet with his people is in the Lord's day, particularly through preached word and the, the sacraments. Right. There's the that's that word that Jesse was trying not to say the sacraments. And so when we have someone who is claiming that God is operating outside of those ordinary means, right? When we talk about the extraordinary work of God, that's what's being claimed. This is an extraordinary, meaning outside of ordinary movement of God that is bringing people, um, not necessarily to salvation, most of these people are Christians already, but is bringing people to some sort of new level of repentance or new level of sanctification, whatever is happening. 
that is an extraordinary claim and we should be cautious and and actually need to have a reason to accept that claim right it's not it's not so much that this the the position that most people are taking is that this claim is made and the burden of proof is on the person who wants to doubt it i'm not even so much doubting it i haven't been given a reason to believe it in the first place and so a lot of times what's being done is I'll say, well, like, okay, what's the evidence for this claim? And they're like, well, look at all the people who are saying this is a revival. Well, that's the claim. Like, you can't prove a claim by appealing to the claim itself. So the fact that these these kids and the the professors and people who are there are saying this is a revival, they're saying that the, the Holy Spirit is moving in some extraordinary way, that's the claim. And we can't just point to their statements as the proof for that. And so f- from my perspective, and I'll, I'll, I'll be interested to hear what Jesse, we haven't talked about this, so I'll be interested to hear what Jesse has to say about it too. From my perspective, it's not so much that I, I don't think that something is going on there. Um, obviously, something is going on there. And it seems like people are gathering and worshiping. It seems the people there are more or less genuine from what I can see from a distance. But the idea that this is some sort of extraordinary movement of God akin to the first great awakening or the second great awakening, that is a pretty significant claim. And God has revealed to us in the scriptures that he ordinarily works in these regular predictable ways. So it's not putting God in a box to say, well, you got to prove to me that he's doing something outside of what he's told us I would do. It would be like if I said to someone, um, every Monday morning, I go to Starbucks and I buy my coffee and then uh, and then I drive to work and I take this route. So if you want to run into me, if you want to find me on Monday morning at such and such a time, you'll find me at Starbucks. That's where I am ordinarily. And then out of nowhere, someone says, well, actually, I saw him at Dunkin Donuts at that time and he was in a different town entirely. There would have to be some sort of evidence for that claim. If my express statement is that I do this this is my ordinary pattern. And then you say something extraordinary, something outside of that ordinary pattern has happened. There has to be some sort of evidence for that. Now I'm a, I'm a inconsistent uh, person in just in general, people are not consistent the way that God is consistent. But now we have God who has said, ordinarily, this is how I operate. I operate through the ministry of word and sacrament by the ordained ministry of men who are duly appointed and called to serve that purpose. And I do it on the Lord's day. Doesn't mean he can't or doesn't work elsewhere, but that requires evidence. It requires some sort of proof that that is what's going on. And that's what I think is missing in a lot of these discussions. It's so much of it is, um, it's focused on, well, look at the confession of sin. It must be God moving. Or it's look at the weird people rolling on the ground. It must not be God moving. We don't know any of those things. We don't know what that is. We don't know what's going on. The reality is though, I have not seen anything besides sort of a bare claim that this is the move of God to justify believing that it is. So it's not so much that I'm doubting that it's a move of God. It's just, I haven't really been given a reason to believe that it is. The burden of proof is not on me who is hearing the claim to disprove it. The burden of proving the claim is on the people making the claim or the people who are propagating the claim. So that's what I'm distinguishing. We should be, it's okay to be optimistic. Um, I don't know that we should actually be asking God to operate outside of the way he's promised to operate us because that represents sort of this perspective that that's not good enough or that we're not satisfied with that. But it's okay to be optimistic and say something is happening. People appear to be worshiping God, but we don't need to appeal to some sort of extraordinary supernatural movement for that. Like God uses regular, ordinary, providential situations all the time. This could just be one of those providential situations, or this could be like a weird emotionalism. I came to faith at a, at like a revival, revival type 
like um, team conference. I don't think that that was some sort of special move of the Holy Spirit beyond like the special move of the Holy Spirit that happens in generation always, but it doesn't require some, some postulate uh, theory that God is descending on this place in a unique, unprecedented way, similar to Pentecost, which I've heard those claims about this. So I'm interested to hear what you have to think, um, or, or if you think I'm out of my mind, whatever, just please <laughs> let me know. Well, I'm happy to come along with you. I'm just going to come along with you on this whole distinguished with. I'm with you in this. I think it's actually compounded by the fact that at least American usage of the word, like, and I'll put it in quotes, revival, meaning like a concentrated evangelistic campaign or revivalist, meaning its leader, that actually stems from this, from the pattern of like Charles Finney, for instance, like in the late 1800s. And so one might ask, do we not in some ways cheapen the ordinary means by trying to create an event that somehow is using the ordinary means to make something extraordinary in our own presence. Right. That's the problem. It is a claim, and I'm glad you said it this way, because it's a bit like saying in science there's a hypothesis or there's a theory. It's because it hasn't yet to be proven. It always gets proven after the fact, like ex post. So I think what I struggle with in this is that is it possible that what happens is we downplay the ordinary means to such a degree that when we and this is how it's been phrased, I think, in my conversation with people and online, that when somebody says, like, I actually saw a video that was like, this was the ordinary, actually, I think it said that, like, this was the ordinary or the the regular chapel service, which started the revival. And I yeah. just thought that was so funny, just the, the words of language, because I was like, well, of course it is. Was the gospel being preached? Was was the was yeah. the scripture present and expounded? Was law and gospel brought to bear on the people who were within hearing of the word that was being proclaimed? Then, of course, it was an ordinary message. Now, yeah. the thing is, in the strictest sense, we could say any time that somebody falls under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, there is a revival going on. Right. And so, in that sense, this is nothing new, right? I cut to God, who's like, this is my jam. It's yeah. like using the gospel in an ordinary way with these really simple means, which seem mundane and trite in some cases, but to do something extraordinary, that is exactly what God does. He's always stacking the deck against himself. He doesn't need us then to like promulgate and to create some kind of like energy and momentum above and beyond that. Because I think that when I look at this, I'm just afraid that even my own life, I'm just cheapening every time that we come, and we worship God in song every time that we hear the word expounded to us and preached every time the gospel is made clear and Jesus high and lifted up, God is going to do something extraordinary in the lives of his people. That is the way that he works. Yeah. So the, I'm with you. I also get a little bit like where I bristle on this topic. Generally, it's just the day and age in which we live as well. And so this idea that like, it's just easier for these things to gain momentum and emotionalism because of the way in which they're advertised and promoted yeah. and promulgated yeah. and made known very broadly. And so they can kind of create their own energy beyond that. And then at that point, I get nervous because it's possible the whole thing has become convoluted. So I do agree with you. I think this is maybe like a word that's just not necessary to use really. And yeah. maybe I would even start, go as far as to say like, what does revival mean? Like, what does it really mean? Yeah. And I think you're going to get as many different answers as you ask people. And so I've heard some say, well, I know it's revival because healing took place. Yeah. Or I know it's revival because people are repenting. But I'll tell you what, I, I am blessed to be able to be a part of a church that I think worships passionately, is concerned about God, and comes together on Lord's Day to do those two things. And uh, by God's grace, I get to see some of that very regularly. So yeah. I think this is just the way God works. And so 
it's it makes for a really great story right but like the longevity of a service <laughs> like, yeah. can we just can i just say this to be like triggering to some people yeah. the longevity of a service in no way is tightly coupled with the sincerity or the actual purpose of that service yeah. or whether or not God is actually working. Like and at some point, honestly, it gets kind of weird because I'd be like, just because it's been going on for a certain period of time, uh, doesn't, doesn't mean yeah. that that's revival. Um, it just means that you, you can create some hysteria and some hype and get a lot of people involved. Could it be possibly, but to your point, can we just all come to the place where like, Hey, listen, you know what God loves to do work through yeah. ordinary measures that yeah. he has prescribed that he has ordained right if you will like that this is what he delights to do and it's in part because it just shows his great glory his great concern and compassionate care for us that that is the way that he touches us and that again this is the way in which he moves among us so i'm with you i think the the right thing to say is to look at this to with a with a keen eye towards saying you know how should we understand what's going on here and because we have imperfect information i can't bring to bear like some kind of final conclusion except to say it's it's worth it to have a, to examine it with a critical eye. I yeah. think that's totally fair. Yeah, a, a few things that I think uh, maybe ver- verge more or verge veer more towards denial on this for me. So there are a couple things that I think we should look at this and be concerned about. So uh, with everything I just said, um, I think that you know the burden of proof to validate the claim is on the one making the claim. I think there are some evidences actually that have come up already um, that that mitigate against this being a genuine special move of the Holy Spirit. So as of right now, uh, there was an article written um, and they said that as of the writing of the article or as of the interview that was taking place that generated the article, people had been worshiping for a hundred hours continuously. Well, that means that some people had skipped their Lord's Day service to attend this chapel thing. So to me, that tells me this probably is not a move. The the Holy Spirit is not, um, the Holy Spirit is probably not moving people not to attend Lord's Day worship, right? There are reasons to miss Lord's Day worship. Uh, Worshiping somewhere else um, when you have no reason not to be at your service is probably not something the Holy Spirit is prompting people to do. There are times when you're away from your church for valid reasons. You're on vacation. You have a work trip. You are sick. You have, you know, you're doing a a job that has elements of mercy and charity and things like that. Okay, that's that's different. But just I want to be at this chapel service because it's been going for a hundred hours. That's not a reason. The other thing. There's a weird, um, I, I almost want to call it like the rubberneck effect or like the Gawker effect. I've heard accounts of pastors who are within a driving distance of this, who left their uh, left their home at 2 or 3 a.m. the Saturday night, so this would be Sunday morning, and then they drove to this place to see what was going on, drove back home, and preached with no sleep. To me, that's just silly. Like, it's just silly. And I think the other thing is that this comes mostly from an article that our good friend Reginald uh, Scott Clark, uh, I, I don't know if he would be a good friend if he knew we were calling him Reginald, but um, I think he loves it. He, on, on the Heidelberg, Heidel blog, there's an article called Asbury is Having a Revival Again. It was posted on February 14th. Now, I, I, I love Scott Clark's stuff. I think he has good insight on a lot of this stuff. I don't accept everything he has to say uncritically. And I think that there are some, um, he can be a little bit short-sighted when it comes to 
anything outside of his particular understanding of what it means to be a PNR Presbyterian Reformed congregation. So I think his definition of Presbyterian Reformed is very narrow. And I think that the actual reality is a bit broader than that. But all of that said, this is an excellent article. And the point he makes is that revivalism is a is a tradition. There's a tradition and traditions have playbooks. And this re- revival, quote unquote revival, is following all the normal playbooks, right? It's following all the normal patterns. And I think my main concern with this is that it reflects a dissatisfaction in, in evangelicalism with the ordinary means of grace. And this goes back to people like George Whitfield, right? George Whitfield had an enormous ministry. Lots of people came to faith, but Whitfield, Whitfield basically did what he did because he didn't think that the, in part, because he didn't really think that the ordinary means of grace were sufficient. Now, a lot of that is historically situated. The preaching in in his day in certain areas where he started his ministry in England was not good. So there was a deficiency in the ordinary in the application of the ordinary ordinary means of grace, and he couldn't get a license to be a an ordinary ordained minister. So I don't. I'm not to say there isn't a place for sort of itinerant preachers, and and for that, especially when the church is in a, a sort of a downgrade where the actual visible church is not performing its duties the way it should. But Whitfield's ministry was somewhat self-consciously a circumvention of the ordinary means of grace. And so the whole revivalistic culture, the whole revivalistic tradition is sees itself as somewhat of a corrective to a dry, stuffy doctrine, ordinary means of grace theology and that that concerns me. And so this is just something that I think as as people who claim something of a reformed identity, and when I'm speaking myself, I mean a capital R reformed identity, we should be very cautious of sort of going after the flashy new thing, right? We should should be cautious of going after the shiny thing that catches our attention. And I'm just concerned that in this case, there's a lot of people that this is flashy and shiny. I don't understand why people people are driving not even people who are going to be a part of the revival. People are driving eight hours to just go check it out, to just go right. see what's happening. And that's why I call it like the Gawker's effect or like the, the rubberneck effect is like, why are we investing time, like an energy and money going to check it out? Like, I don't understand that. And then one last thing before we move on, there are probably some people that are like, what gives you the right to comment on this? This has nothing to do with you locally. What I'll say about that, because I've had this question posed to me in various places online, what I'll say about that is that the school, from an official institutional standard, things on their website, um, devotes, um, resources they're devoting, the students involved in it are going on national podcasts. Like They're publicizing this event. They're making it right. a public event. That gives us a right as people who are being exposed to this media to think about and comment on the information being presented. So it's kind of like that thing we talked about over Christmas time, like some things should be private, private application and private piety. And if you make those private things public, you're opening it up for people to comment on it. And you can't really complain when someone does. So I just think we need to think carefully about this. We should look at this and say someone is making an extraordinary claim. They're claiming God is working in a way that he does not ordinary work and that he has said he has not said he ordinarily works. So we should be cautious. We should expect evidence for that claim. And we should just be 
we shouldn't be like enamored with this sort of fancy new thing that that's happening. Like we don't need that. We don't need that. We should be satisfied with the week in week out preaching of the word and the, the administration of the sacraments on whatever frequency your church does it. That should be satisfying to us. And if it's not, there's a deeper issue at hand than I think we need to worry about. Yeah, that's totally fair. I mean, this is one of the things I think we should just, for everybody's sake, acknowledge that we're not saying that uh, God can't and doesn't do revival. He does it in his own terms. God is untamed in this way. He's not chaotic, but he's untamed. Yeah. He can do it. And revival is the spontaneous work of God. So in some ways it bears the mark of this kind of thing. But at this point, this is this is why it's just helpful to be, have a critical mind toward it, is that it's just so convoluted, and especially in our age of you know all of this technology, the ability to share and disseminate all this information, and it might be one of those things where it's so it's already gone viral in many places, and that by itself can compromise, I think, to some degree what we're talking about here. You don't find that both by way of the technology in the past, but also I think by its essential elements in previous "quote unquote" revivals, this right. that same type of approach. So, just to close this out, I did, of course, go to perplexity.ai and ask. What is the Asbury revival? And it just said it's not. <laughs> so what, it, what it actually said is, and this is interesting. Here's what it actually said: is the Asbury revival is an ongoing Christian. This will give you so again. This is synthesizing the, the like the zeitgeist of the internet, people. So I think this will give you a sense of like what Tony was just talking about about how it's being perceived and what's being written about it. So this is what the description is. The Asbury Revival is an ongoing Christian revival at Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky. It began on February 3rd, 1970. So it's been going on for longer than we thought and was prompted after <laughs> students spontaneously stayed for a nonstop worship service. The event has gone viral on TikTok and is prompting discussions about the power of faith and the role of religion in modern society. So you can see already like, that that is where it's getting it's like that's that's what people are drawing from like the purpose of this whole event. So it, it's different than we probably most reform folks would describe what revival means, especially in terms of law and gospel and repentance and fruit being born out of that stuff. So this is, I think, kind of a jumbled mess, unfortunately. And honestly, because it's gone viral in this way, it's drawn a lot of attention and that brings its own momentum and you know, I'm not judging why they're keeping this going or what's going on, all those things. There could be, and there perhaps is, in many microcosmic ways, a lot of good that's coming out of this and the Lord is using it. But we might argue, is he just doing the ordinary things, yeah. the ordinary means that he desires to do? And that actually does lead us, in truth, without much work, to our topic of conversation on today's episode. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a built-in segue for us. Yeah. That happened really fantastically. Yeah. So today we're going to talk about sacraments. So we're on this kind of ongoing mega series, mega series of um, just systematic theology. And so we're more or less following the structure and the the order of things that the Westminster um, Confession of Faith, the London Baptist Confession of Faith, more or less following that same structure. And so we've talked, we most recently talked about what is the church, what's the nature of the church. We've had conversations in the past about what is preaching and what, you know, what's the significance of the public reading of scripture and worship. And now we're getting to sort of another element of the, the, the practical outflow of that theology. So we're talking now about what is a sacrament. And then next week we'll talk about the Lord's Supper, which we've done a whole series on. So we, we're going to try to come at it from a different angle. The next week after that, we're going to talk about what is baptism. We'll, we'll try to come at that from a different angle since we've had lots of episodes on baptism. But we wanted to sort of lay the groundwork first of what is a sacrament itself? Like what's the definition of a sacrament? How is that different than, for example, an ordinance, which is, is the way that... Um, the more Baptistic part of the Reformed tradition tends to talk about 
the same basic thing. Um, and it, it, it's a, it's a difference of perspective. It's in a lot of ways, it's a difference of degrees rather than a difference of kind. Um, and it's a different emphasis on, on what it is that we're doing and, and what the origin of it was. So I wanted to talk a little bit about what is a sacrament. And I want to start out, we'll, we'll just start out with the statement from the Westminster larger catechism. This is question 162, which is what is a sacrament? Uh, and the answer is a sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ in his church to signify, seal, and exhibit unto those that are within the covenant of grace, the benefits of his mediation to strengthen and increase their faith and all other graces to oblige them to obedience, to testify and cherish their love and communion one with another and to distinguish them from those that are without. So there's a lot to that definition. I think when we, when we say what is a sacrament, People latch on to probably the sign and that which signify part of it. But the Reformed tradition, as expressed in the Westminster Larger Catechism, actually has a much broader understanding of what it is that this thing, predominantly, we're talking about the Lord's Supper, right? Everybody who is a Christian should be baptized and is baptized into the church. That happens once. So it's significant, but it happens once. We'll talk about the specifics when we get there. When we talk about the sacraments, though, the more dominant and predominant sacrament in the church is the Lord's Supper, because that happens on an ongoing basis. So it's more in the forefront of most of our minds. And it does all of these things. And I don't think we really think about that a lot of times. So we'll get into the specifics of each individual sacrament and how each of those things does these things. But we need to sort of talk about the sacrament generally, what it is that this is, and each element of that definition in, a, in a, probably a pretty terse fashion. Yeah, the great thing about this is I think that the Reformed tradition has like a corner on this in a really lovely way, a really practical way, a really biblical way. And that is, you and I have spoken about length about how anything that is overtly trying to garner your attention but is not prescribed as part of worship is a distraction at best and is destructive at worst. Yes. But here what we have is God and his goodness for us giving these sacraments as the very thing that we can latch onto as witnesses that don't replace worship, but that come along and comfort us and provide strength. And so what you'll do is, well, what you'll do, what you'll do if you go and search all the confessions is, as you've already said, Tony, you're going to find all this language, like things like pledge, seal, sign, witness, all the language of the creeds of Reformation churches. So I really like, for instance, like the French and the Gaelic Confession of Faith, they have this language around pledges and seals of the grace of God. And by this means an aid and a comfort to our faith because of the infirmity, which is in us, which I really like. So it's almost like they're, I mean, they're basically saying, listen, God gave these sacraments to us, not to divide us, but to give us a great gift, a source of comfort, a witness. And I like that language better. So as we start talking about this, I want to encourage everybody to keep in mind that we're talking about a witness, somebody who pops up, something that pops up and says, yes, I can confirm this. Yeah. Yes, this is true. Yes, this is valuable. Yes, this is right on. So these things are a pledge of our adoption. They're a lasting witness that Christ is in us by the power of the Holy Spirit and that God has done the very thing which he said he would do. So whether you want to use the sign, the seal, we're talking about contractual language, we're talking about surety bond, we're talking about some demonstrative efforts some manifestation that God has said, yes, these are my people. Yes, this is my child. So this is the way, for instance, we can move away from looking at cheap replicas like second commandment violations, instead focus on these other material ordinary means that God has given us to be a witness to us in a very sensible and sensory way so that we might know 
that he is providing strength in our faith, not the faith itself, not the fact that these come with grace, that grace imputed through these things, but rather, and instead they confirm for us that God is doing the very thing that he said he was going to do. I find that to be like the proper way to couch like all the technical language that we're probably about to get into. But this idea of a witness, I think is predominant in the scriptures to help us understand what sacraments really are. And again, the language is wild and awesome. Words mean something, right? So sacrament has a long history and then you'll have people that are like, you know what? I just like to jettison all that baggage. So I'm going to call it some, something else, you know, I'm going to call it, you know, I'm going to stick with what Christ ordained. Yeah. And, but of course you run into problems because Christ ordained a lot of things like preaching and prayer, but we're, we're specifying, like you said, differences of kind of magnitude as opposed opposed to kind. So we won't try to get wrapped up hopefully in too much of that stuff. Now different denominations use all these words somewhat interchangeably, but also slightly differently. But I just love this idea. At the, so if we start at the face, that God has given us these things, like these are great gifts to us. Yeah. And even though we talk about, this is this tends to be, I think, something that um, Baptists in generally fall prey to. It's not a bad thing per se, but I think something we could all be challenged with. And that is this idea that, yes, your baptism, like you said, is once, but the scriptures call us to remember the baptism. Right. right? And what's the purpose of that, except to realize that's a witness for us. And there may be times we ought to purposely dwell on that or ruminate on our baptism. Again, not because there's something in within it that is giving us a special grace, but because it is a sign sealed and delivered in the sense that God is fulfilling a promise in something that has been manifestly demonstrated. So I just love that God is so good to us to give us these things that we can see, we can taste, we can touch, so to speak, as the true reminders. In other words, I, I almost sense God saying to us, don't get caught up in images. Don't get caught up in the Ten Commandments. Of Violence. Instead, go to the sacraments where I place myself in a very special way before you that you might lean into those things as a source of comfort for the infirmity, which is in all of you. Yeah. So I think, I think when you talk about this from a distinctly reformed perspective, um, whether this is reformed kind of Presbyterian reform, you know, Presbyterian or, or continental reformed Pado Baptist, or even when you're talking about 1689 Baptists and kind of including that in the reformed camp, uh, which our previously aforementioned friend Reginald is is throwing up right now and he doesn't know why. Um, you have to remember the sacrament is primarily something that God gives to us to communicate to us. Right. So even Calvin would say that there are elements of the sacraments that are our, our, that are our profession of faith. Right. The Bible says when we, the Bible, I just channeled Billy Graham on accident. The Bible, <laughs> the Bible says, um, the Bible says that the Lord's Supper is a proclamation of Christ's death until he comes. And it's not, it's not a proclamation. It's we proclaim him until he comes. Right. So we don't want to eliminate that element of the sacraments. Excuse the unintentional pun on the word element there. We don't want to eliminate, um, that, por- that, aspect of what the sacraments are. But the predominant understanding within the Reformed tradition is that these are things which God gives to us to signify his promise to us. So the the word sacrament, and you can do a lot of research on the etymology of this, it means a lot, it comes from a lot of different things actually. But the word sacrament is, comes from the Latin sacramentum, which is a solemn oath, right? In, In the context of its original use, it was an oath that the soldier swore to be a part of the army, right? It was his his um, his enlistment oath, basically. But there's also an element that the church has used where the sacrament is actually God's solemn oath to us 
that he will do what he has said he would do in the gospel. Right. So when you read this definition in the, the catechism, for example, it's a it's an ordinance instituted by the church. So we do the ordinance, right? We are the ones that do the sacrament. We participate, we we are the ones that like put out the bread and the wine, and we're the ones that eat it and drink it, and we're the ones that we, you know, you dip or you sprinkle water on somebody. We're the ones actually doing the actions um, in a sort of temporal register. But it is Christ who gives this as an ordinance in order to signify, seal, and exhibit unto those that are within the covenant of grace the benefits of his mediation. Yes. So, so it's God's way. The sacraments are God's way of communicating to us, not just revealing to us, but actually conveying to us the promises of the gospel, right? And we'll talk about how baptism, you know, how, how it is that baptism does that. Right. I mean, we're not going to get into too much detail because this is a one hour casual theology podcast, not a seminary course. But there's a there's a particular way that we understand that this happens. It actually baptism actually does something. The Lord's Supper actually does something. It's not just a sign. It doesn't just signify it seals. So that's where we have to understand this is that it's not just a statement we're making to God or to the people around us. It is that it is that. But it's not just that. It also is God's statement to us and to the people around us, but primarily to us. When I, whenever your frequency is in your church, when I participate in the Lord's Supper, when I eat the bread and I drink the cup, I proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. But who am I proclaiming that to? I'm proclaiming it to me. Primarily, I'm proclaiming it to me. I'm proclaiming the Lord's death till he comes, and I'm proclaiming everything that that means to me. Christ is proclaiming that to me. So it is this sort of like proclamation and seal. It's like um, if you think about the uh, the Emancipation Proclamation, right? This newest federal holiday is Juneteenth. I don't remember the specific date. Sometime in June, obviously. I think it's the 13th maybe, but whatever date it is. It's this day in June, and it represents, it represents the day that the news made it, that, as far as we know, to the last slave, that they had been freed. That's what the day represents. And so there's this proclamation. There was the accomplishment of the emancipation of the slaves when President Lincoln signed the declaration. That's when it happened. But then there was the application of that as the news spread. And that, in a certain sense, is what happens in the Lord's Supper. It is the statement to us that what the Lord did 2,000 years ago on Calvary and in his resurrection and ascension and his ongoing mediation, what that, what that did— that is ours. It's ours in Christ. And that's what this sacrament is. It's a proclamation and application of that reality to us when we partake of it. That's right on. I, I love that this word, the sacrament itself is rich in its etymology and people should look it up because you can turn around and look at it from different ways and all of them find some coalescence on all the points that you just said. The one that's my favorite because of my own background is just that aside from also being used, of course, as an oath, and there's something beautiful with that. The, the second very common meaning was that if you were suing someone in Roman civil law, then both the parties would deposit the contested amount of money into this common fund. Now, I think most people can appreciate this idea. It has a specific name. I'm talking about U.S. currency. Currency, fiat currency, currency issued by the government, is always fungible. That is, it means every other dollar is like every other dollar. Right. So in points here, when the Roman civil authorities came together and said, we're going to create this fund because this money is contested, what they're doing is they're making it sacrosanct. That is, they're setting this money aside from all other monies that could be the same. Instead of saying, this is in dispute here. 
So in this sense, sacramentum implies that the water, the bread, the wine, they're all set apart from their ordinary use to represent yeah. God's promise or his pledge to us in the gospel, along with all the corresponding benefits and our response and commitment to those benefits. So in that way, there's something really lovely about this because all of it is a gift from God. And if I might introduce one final metaphor or maybe one of many, who knows how long this podcast might go on. We might <laughs> just make a revival joke. Uh, um, forgive me. I'm going to move on. So here's another metaphor. Think of this, I think it's easier in our modern context to think of like a contract. So if you were to think of like an employment contract or a memorandum of sale or some IOU, what you hold in your hand with that document is a sheet of paper with a series of commitments written on it. And that's what the gospel is. It's a series of promises expressed in words. It's God's promise to forgive, to acquit, to adopt, to persevere, to ride resurrection and glory. The sacraments are like the signature at the bottom of that contract. Right. Of course, in previous times, people didn't sign documents. They sealed them with wax. So this is where you get all of that lovely language from the reformers. And so the reformers were speaking of his seals, but today our signature is a normal way of confirming commitments. The covenant promises that God makes to us in the gospel are signed and sealed with water, bread, and wine. The seal doesn't add any new content to the promises, right. nor does it enact them, but it does seal and confirm those promises. And it's a comfort if you have this document to look at it and see that it was signed. This is why still in, in my own industry in our day and age, for all of like the DocuSign procedures and the electronic signatures, sometimes you need still what's called a wet signature, which yeah. only means somebody needs to take out a blue pen and sign the document yep. to see that we can confirm that it was done in their own hand, that what they're attesting to on the paper has actually been codified by the giving of their own name to the document itself. So it is finalized so that what is written will in fact come to pass. And then we can pull that document out anytime we want to and say, look at that. It's signed. Yep. I, I know it's going to come to pass because this person went to the great effort of actually putting their name onto it. So this is why I think there's a lot of maybe heat around sacraments. And we could have spent all our time talking about the difference between Protestants and Roman Catholic Church. It's not necessary at this point, except to say that I like what you've said to me. These are great gifts that God gives to us. And we ought to kind of lean into them again as these really normal, so to speak, things, but have become sacrosanct because when God draws so close to something, when he appropriates it, it becomes holy. It's imbued with a different purpose and with a different power. And so we see these things as these, in many ways, what we're talking about here, physical signs uh, in the proper context, understanding that God loves us, that he's done something to communicate that that love is, has been uh, delivered to us and that he's going to hold to those promises. So do this with regularity. This idea that when you come to baptism or when you come to the Lord's table, you are a confessor in, this, in the sense that the, the author of Hebrews is saying to us, confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And you're confessing that both in your community of gathering among other brothers and sisters, and you're confessing it to yourself and Christ is confessing it to you. So this is like, it's just like confession inception, which is like beautiful and amazing. And just at this point, getting me pumped up to run through a wall. Yeah. I want to read a section that I think people probably would not. Uh, this is a section of the scripture that people probably would not associate with the sacraments, but I think it's instructive to us to, to, sort of understand some of the cultural background of covenants and how they functioned. So this is out of Genesis chapter 31. Uh, this is uh, Jacob has just fled from Laban. He's taken his wives and his children and all of his flocks that he had um, had earned through his labor. Uh, and Laban catches up to him and they have this conversation Finally, Laban says, okay, I'll let you go, but you have to promise not to, uh, not to take other wives. You have to promise to be good to my, my daughters and their children. 
And he says, uh, this is verse 43. So chapter 31, verse 43. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, the daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks. And all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters and for their children whom they have borne? Come, now let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. They took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jager Shadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid and Mizpah, for he said, the Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters or take wives beside my daughters, although no one is with us, see God is a witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, see this heap and pillar, which I have set up between you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness. And I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do me harm. Though God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of, of, our, of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the country. So what this, what's going on here is Jacob and Laban are making this agreement, right? Laban is saying, fine, I'm not going to try to stop you. Um, he sort of is saying like, this isn't really right, but I'm not going to try to stop you. But here's what you got to promise me. You got to promise me that you won't uh, you're not going to oppress my daughters and you're not going to take other wives. That's that's the promise you got to make to me. And Jacob says, fine, I'm all about that. But you got to promise not to come after me. You got to promise not to cross this 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 heap to do me harm. And I won't cross this heap to do you harm. They're making this agreement. And in order to seal this agreement, they set up this public testimony that honestly, if it hadn't been recorded in the scripture, no one else would even know what it meant. It's a pile of rocks and a big rock set up as a pillar. That's what it is. It doesn't have any, as far as we can tell, there's no writing on it. There's no marking on it. There's no special significance to it. It's not shaped in a particular way. It's just a pile of rocks and a rock set up as a pillar. But it's been invested with this meaning now. This, right. this pile of rocks, this pillar here, this is the promise now that Jacob has made to Laban. That, that pile of rocks is the promise itself. It's communicating and conveying the promise so that if there ever was a time where, you know, five years down the road, word comes to Laban that Jacob has taken a fifth wife, right? Jacob has taken another wife and he, he cast Leah out. He finally got sick of her weak eyes or whatever reason he gave for it. He stopped being, giving her what was her due. He stopped caring for her the way he was, he should. Laban now can come to this pillar and say, see this, see this heap of rocks, see Galid, this was your promise to me that you wouldn't do this. So this is would be the way that um, that Laban would hold Jacob accountable. Now, if Laban two days later says, you know, there's a lot of flocks, I better go get them. And he chases after them. Jacob could go back and say, see this pillar here? This was your promise to me that you weren't going to do that. The sacrament is, in a very real sense, the same kind of thing. It's just ordinary bread and wine, just like it was ordinary rocks. There was no markings on it. It didn't become magic. There was no special, they, they didn't glow. They didn't hover in the air. It wasn't like a Dragon Ball Z episode or anything like that. Just a pile of rocks, just regular bread that you have on your table, just regular wine that you have in the refrigerator or on the counter, or wherever you keep it. That's all it is. But it becomes this symbol, this meaning. It becomes the very promise of God communicated to his people. That's what a sacrament is. It's God's promise invested into these objects, these ordinary objects that we see and use every day, 
right? They take on a special meaning and a special use on the Lord's day in association with the sermon when we have the Lord's Supper. But we see bread, we see wine, at least in this time period. You see bread and wine every day. So there's this ongoing investment of meaning and the promise of God that you are in the covenant of grace and all the benefits of Christ's mediation in that covenant of grace are communicated to you. Just like if, if, if Jacob ever felt like, oh man, Laban is going to come get me. I'm really nervous that Laban is going to come get me. All he really had to do is go to that heap of rocks and that heap of rocks would reinforce to him. Laban promised he wasn't going to do this. Now Laban was a scoundrel. So there was probably elements that that wouldn't have worked, but God is not a scoundrel. God's promise is secure. So when we take the bread, we take the wine, or when we think about our baptism, we improve on our baptism. That is a reiteration of God's promise, which is, is better than stone. He swore that promise on his very self. So that's what a sacrament is. We should have so much comfort in that. I think we look to these other things for comfort. We look to our own experience, our own feelings right. to kind of go back to the revivalism thing. We look, we look to like the emotionality that's involved in that. God uses emotions. God uses our emotions to accomplish things, right? He may be moving in providential ways in these kids at this, at this school and in the professors and the people that are coming there. But we look to these other things when the, the thing that we should look to is what God has promised to attach his, he, he's promised to attach his promise to He's promised to communicate to us that we are in the covenant of grace and that there are benefits that are flowing to us. We, we receive that promise and we reiterate that promise every time we do the Lord's Supper. So that's what a sacrament is. So I'm really excited to talk about the specifics of, of the Lord's Supper. And we may talk a little bit about like what it is and what it isn't, but I'm excited to talk about that. I'm excited to talk about baptism from more than just a, who do we baptize? How much water do we use? Kind of a perspective. I and mean, we've covered that in right. the past. We don't need to rehash that. I'm excited to talk about it from this perspective. Of what is it? How does it actually seal the promise of God to us? I think is where I want to go with that. Yeah. I, th I think that's like the more helpful conversation at this point. Cause there's, there's a lot, the internet of course is replete and full of all kinds of arguments and writings about both those things. And I think people are they, they have good reason. They're uh, Christians that have good reason to understand baptism in both ways. And I think what we can do that might be serve the greater whole is just have a conversation about what these things actually mean, how they're practically applied in our lives and how we ought to use them and appreciate them and love them and cherish them. And what they mean, again, for those who are hurting, struggling, in desperate need of the sacraments. They're there because God is good to us. He's given them to us for a purpose. And it's, of course, not just to have like super riveting conversation about different theological perspectives of how they're applied. But I would say more at the center is what does it mean for the Christian to be in a rhythm of enjoying, using, and appreciating the sacraments? And I think that's something that often we come to the sacraments because of the debate sometimes. And not the other way around, as these gifts of God are not just trying to focus on their distinctives, but again, what is it that they should mean to us and why are they given to us? And they're just this lovely witness. I really just keep coming back to that. To have something that comes alongside and confirms a source of comfort is a bomb for your soul. And also, it's just, again, something where God didn't have to give these sacraments. So why did he give them? Yeah. What was the reason for giving them to us? And if we can understand something about that, perhaps it can give us a better grasp on how we use them in our worship and how we 
basically kind of inculcate them into our lives in such a way that we're using them properly and not just think of them as like these kind of weird, discrete or ephemeral ideas. Yeah. But something that is really part and parcel of the Christian life, that they are bringing benefit to us and that we are using them in the appropriate way to kind of extract that benefit. Because again, they're a gift from God. So if, if God has given us this gift, then shouldn't we say, well, it, we don't just want to like put it in the closet and look at it from time to time or sit it on the shelf and admire it from afar, but we want to use it and appreciate it and love it and bring it into our lives as something that we cherish. I'm excited to have some more conversation around these two things in particular. And I'm sure that as we talk about those by nature, because it is us, some of the distinctives will kind of bubble to the surface. True. But I think we've we've been outspoken before. Isn't it? There's got to be some episode in the back catalog about Protestant and Roman Catholic distinctives and oh yeah, theology, right? It's got to yeah. be there somewhere. Oh yeah, just just use perplexity.ai to find it. Um, it's it's out there in the world. Speaking of perplexity.ai, I think we have to switch your affirmation to a denial, Jesse. I just asked perplexity perplexity AI. It should have an easier to say name than that. I agree. Uh, how much water should I use for baptism? The answer <laughs> is the amount of water necessary for baptism implicit in the Greek word baptizo, which means to immerse. <laughs> so what That's I did, like, what I did discover about perplexity though, is that you can edit the sources that it's using. Have you seen that? Yes. So yeah. you can pull up the source list. It'll show you exactly what sources it's using. You can swap out the sources. So, which is sort of like, I, I was thinking like, this is kind of how like freshmen in college write their papers is they just like synthesize sources together and you just swap out the sources. So that your paper says what you wanted to say. So it's kind of yeah. like the same thing. Listen, yeah. it's, it is very much like that. It's still, there's a human element to it all, but it's just another way to peruse and surf the interwebs, if you will. So yeah, I'm, I'm stoked about sacraments. I, I think this, hopefully people are sensing in our own voices, the excitement that we have for these things yeah. that God has given us. And I think you and I have been long contenders that, can I say it this way, that sometimes it's, people disagree with me on this. I, I kind of think these days, still the Lord's Supper is kind of in a bear market. You know, yeah. it's just this, it's not just this thing we do. There are a lot of people, I want to be fair. There's a lot of Christians that have like this great love for it. But I think sometimes what happens is with the sacraments, we just feel that they're kind of part and parcel of our traditions. And so we just do them in different ways and they're largely symbolic or there's something that we do to confess something. And that's, that to me is like just part of it. It's like, I don't know, it's like eating a peanut butter jelly sandwich, but it's just the jelly side. You know what I mean? Like if you yeah. can do that, it, it just doesn't make sense. So I, hopefully we can have a holistic conversation about, about all those things. Yeah. Yeah. Looks like you're like furiously asking perplexity.ai more questions. I was trying to figure out what happens if I add the Heidel blog as a source, but for some reason the thing that lets me add sources is gone. So maybe it's it's maybe perplexity is outsmarted me again. Here's here's what we should do. We should get Reginald to create some kind of AI that just uses his website so that you could ask a question and you would just get back like Reginald.ai. That's really what I would like. I'm pretty sure that Reginald actually is an AI. <laughs> he might just be he might just be the internet. So but like just Here's, just like the reform PNR internet. Well that yeah, that very well could be. Here's my last question so we can we can close this thing down because otherwise we could go forever. Um is there any possibility or what is the probability that Reginald knows that at least in this small corner of the internet and in this corner of podcasting that he's known as Reginald. I feel like people who have listened to our voices for far, maybe longer than they should have also adopted the yeah. use, which I'm very happy about. 
I think it's probably 0% because I feel like he probably would have reached out to me and been like, could you stop that? So you although I don't so? I don't log into Twitter very often anymore, so maybe he has because that's the only place we've ever interacted. So I don't know. Maybe he's he's even now desperately screaming if he's listened to anything. He's like, I keep asking them. I really keep pleading with them yeah. to stop. Blowing. And honestly, Reginald, can I may I call you Reginald? Reginald, we just <laughs> we just don't know. He's I'm like, so no, sorry. no, you can't call me Reginald. That's the whole point. We just—it's a name of great distinction, and we never actually—you do know what his actual first name is, right? Or every—I think it's Robert, him? isn't it? Ah, oh, no, it's definitely Reginald. It's definitely Reginald. It should yeah, be Reginald. Just, given I those feel two like choices. it's kind of like uh, like squatter's law. Like you know, if you like, you live in a building long enough, it you legally we own say it. it long enough. If we call him Reginald long enough, and he doesn't correct us, then I think that becomes his first name. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, the first thing I'm going to do when we get off this is ask. Complexity. <laughs> Can you change a person's name legally by just calling them something for enough time? You got it. Well, Tony, this has been great. I always appreciate these conversations. I always love to see them pop up on the calendar like this. And I think there's so much here that we could tease out. I'm sure we'll come back to this. But of course, we will in the next couple of episodes where we talk about the Lord's Supper and baptism. So if that doesn't entice you to come back, I don't know what will. Yeah. Well, Jesse, until next time, honor Reginald. <laughs> I couldn't help it. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. What if I'm